turn to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, and today we are going to talk about enjoying the peace of God, enjoying the peace of God, and I want to list a few things for you here to see if they provoke any anxiety in you, just the, the mere thought of hear, or the mere hearing of these things, I want to see if they provoke any kind of anxiety in you. The conflict in Israel, upcoming elections, rising inflation, the threat of another global illness, your upcoming annual review, your children's health, your family's food, clothing, and housing needs, your latest lab results, that recent conflict you just had with your sister, that recent conflict you just had with your schoolmate, your friend's recent cancer diagnosis, your recent cancer diagnosis, encroaching governmental restrictions on free speech and Christian ministry. These are all things that cause anxiety, and it's quite possible that just me mentioning them caused in your heart some anxiety, because these are the kinds of things that cause anxiety in our lives, and we know that anxiety can easily infiltrate our lives in our hearts, can it? And Satan will actually use this anxiety to his tactical advantage. How will he do that? Well, he'll do it this way because he knows that anxiety hinders our effectiveness. It makes us spiritually weak and feeble. It causes us to be hesitant and fearful. When we are overcome with anxiety, we are tempted to leave off other responsibilities. We are tempted to leave off worship and important areas of obedience. And Satan knows that, and so he'll try to weave all kinds of anxieties into our life because he knows what it can do to disable us from important areas of obedience and just kind of even take us out of the game. Some of us can be so weighed down with anxiety, it's hard to get out of bed in the morning. And the Proverbs recognize this. Proverbs 12, 25 says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down. Is that true or what? I mean, the, Solomon knew what he was talking about, didn't he? But then he says, but a good word makes the heart glad. And we're going to hear hopefully a good word from scripture today. So enjoying the peace of God is not only a blessing for us, it also enables us, I think, to walk faithfully in our Christian life because being burdened with anxiety, overcome with anxiety, will actually tend to take us out of the game in significant sense. So today we're going to equip ourselves with five essential spiritual disciplines that will enable us to enjoy the peace of God. And I, and I choose those words very carefully because... There may be a temptation to think about the peace of God kind of like the way you think about those cookies that your mom is baking in the other room and the, the smell of the cookies just kind of wafts over you. You're laying on the couch in the, the living room and she's making the cookies and the smell of cookies, chocolate chip cookies by the way, are wafting over you and you smell and you're like, oh, that smells so good. I really enjoy the smell of chocolate chip cookies. And you might think of the peace of God in that way. You just want the peace of God to waft over you like that sweet aroma of chocolate chip cookies. But that's not the way God has ordained for us to enjoy the peace of God. And this is so vital for us to get into Christian life. We don't want to begin to think that the Christian life is passive and that God's blessings come to us by our sheer passivity. There are things that we must do. And as I hopefully it will become clear after we see this passage, there are things that we must do in order to experience the peace of God. We don't lay around passive on the couch enjoying that smell of the cookies. You can do that, by the way. I'm just saying that that's not how the peace of God comes to us typically. There is some activity to it on our part. 
But before we, need, before we even talk about the peace of God, we need to talk about the peace that we have with God, because this is actually foundational to the peace that we'll enjoy with God, or uh, yeah, the, joy that, the peace that we'll enjoy with God. So what do I mean when I'm talking about the peace that we enjoy uh, with God? Uh, Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the peace with God that we have as an objective reality that cannot change. The peace of God will flow out of that, but this must be clear in our minds. That we have peace with God. Here, in that, that short text that I just read out of Romans, Paul's talking about the objective peace that we now have with God. It cannot change because Christ has died in our place. God is no longer at war with us, and we are no longer at war with God. That war has been settled at the cross of Christ, and nothing can change that. We have a fixed peace with God. Our subjective day-to-day experience of inner peace, that's what we'll be talking about today, that's the peace of God, it must be grounded in this objective peace that we have with God. Because Christ has fulfilled all righteousness in our place and borne the wrath of God in our place, we are no longer at war with the living God. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are no longer at war with the living God. and He's no longer at war with you. And that can't change. The terms of peace are settled. You will always have peace with God. Now God sees us in Christ as though we have obeyed his law perfectly. Do you know that? Now that we have Christ's righteousness, Christ, the, the Father beholds you as having obeyed his law perfectly. Have you? No. But that's how he views you in Christ. So now, because of that, we have peace with God and we're united to him. But the peace that God, uh, Paul is talking about in Philippians 4, 7 and 4, 9 is this inner sense of confidence and hope that God will accomplish everything necessary for our good in the immediate and distant future. That's what Paul's talking about in Philippians. The peace of God. It's built on the peace that we have with God, but that's what he's talking about in Philippians 4. He's talking about the inner sense of confident hope that God will accomplish everything necessary for your good in the immediate and near future. And in the distant future. It's subjective because it can ebb and flow. We don't always experience this peace of God. It can ebb and flow and it can change. and It's something that we need to be seeking on a regular basis. But nevertheless, it is something that God wants us to enjoy and it is built upon this peace that we have with God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the reality is, is you can't truly ha- enjoy the peace of God unless you have come to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You need that deepest root of your anxieties dealt with, or else your lesser anxieties will will never be able to be fully dealt with. See, we suffer from anxiety, broadly speaking, as a people, because the biggest source of our anxiety, namely our lack of being at peace with God, causes all these other smaller anxieties to swell up in our hearts and our minds. That's why the world is awash in anxiety today. You just get online real quick and start typing in, do a Google search on anxiety, and you'll find out that the world, particularly in the United States, people in the United States are awash in anxiety. Why is that? Well, there's a lot of things that I mentioned at the beginning that will cause anxiety, but the the problem by and large is that people's deepest root of their anxiety is that they are not at peace with God. 
and therefore they can't experience the subjective peace of God. And so the call today then is to make sure that you are in Christ and that you have peace with God. And now having this peace with God, now that, now that we have this peace with God, we can enjoy the peace of God. So let's now look at our passage for today, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. I'm going to read them and then we will dig into these words. Rejoice in the Lord always, verse 4. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That's our passage. We're going to dig deeply into the mind of God's word in order to unearth some valuable resources to help us in our pursuit of the peace of God. Because I know just by experience that this peace of God is vital to my spiritual life. I'm all over the place if I am constantly overcome with anxiety, and I trust you are the same. And Paul's going to give us five spiritual practices that we must implement. So none of them are non-essential. They are all essential. Five spiritual practices we must implement in our lives that we might enjoy the peace of God. See, what happens, I think, is we tend to pull out verse 6, right? Do not be anxious for anything but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. Maybe you even have that verse memorized. I know I do. I can just pull it out at any moment. I got that verse memorized. And what we do is we tend to pull that out and forget the context, and we think that all we need to do in our pursuit of the peace of God and experiencing that peace that surpasses all understanding, all we have to do is simply pray and, and, and ask God. Well, actually, that verse comes in the context of these other important and vital essential disciplines that we must implement into the course of our life in order for us to experience this peace that Paul's talking about. So let's look at them. Let's start with the first one, verse 4. The first discipline that we must bring into our life is rejoicing always in the Lord. Rejoicing always in the Lord. That's what he says here. He starts this passage by requiring us, encouraging us, exhorting us to rejoice in the Lord always. He says this, rejoice in the Lord Always, again, I will say, rejoice. He didn't merely say, have joy in the Lord. He gives you an activity that you must do. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. This is an important thing. He repeats it two times. And he's given us the basis for this joy, and I've already mentioned it. He gives us the basis for this joy in chapter 3. What is the root of this rejoicing in the Lord? It's the reality that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and He's given you a righteousness that comes by faith alone. That's the root of our rejoicing. We just sang about it, the free grace that's been given to us at Calvary, that the Lord Jesus Christ, who has obeyed the Heavenly Father perfectly, that He has done all that was required of Him by His Heavenly Father, that He obeyed in our place and then went to the cross and died in our place and took the punishment that we deserved, and not only that, but then rose again and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He now provides a perfect righteousness to those who, what? Believe in Him. 
Those who turn from their sins and place their faith in him, he bequeaths to them a gift of righteousness. It's a righteousness that you have that's outside of you, that is always fixed. It's there. It's so long as Jesus is alive, that's your righteousness. And he will always be alive, so you will always have righteousness. And this is what Paul is talking about in chapter 3. Paul was a religious man, more religious than any of us, the most religious of all religious people, as he recounts in Philippians chapter 3. But after all of that, he says in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For that his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Here it is, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul loved the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ had given him his righteousness as a gift apart from his works. It was not something that Paul had to earn. Paul did not need to be anxious about this particular aspect of the Christian life because it was fixed. It was fixed in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus was precious to Paul. He was his righteousness. And not only that, but then he says this. He says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul is anticipating being raised from the dead and being with Christ. And he recognizes he's not perfect. He says that in verse 12. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. What? That resurrection from the dead, that, enjo- that full enjoyment of Christ that he is expecting to have for all eternity. He says this, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So actually, he recognizes that Jesus himself was the sovereign one who grabbed a hold of Paul and saved him. It wasn't, ultimately, it wasn't Paul's genius or wisdom or any of that. It was Jesus reaching down and, and saving Paul, and Paul recognizes this, recognizes this in, in verse 12. Verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain, behind and I strain forward to what lies Ahead, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this is the root of Paul's command to rejoice. This is the Savior that we're called to rejoice in. The Savior of free grace. The Savior of free righteousness. The Savior of sovereign grace who reaches down and saves us and keeps us and holds us. And so then Paul says in verse 4 of chapter 4, rejoice in this Lord Jesus. He is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our rejoicing. And I think just by taking this passage and, and, and teasing it out like that a little bit, you can already see how rejoicing in the Lord is going to be a key to overcoming anxiety, is it not? When Jesus Christ in all of his glory and all of his grace is clear before the eyes of our heart, we will be able to do great damage to our anxiety, I believe. Just by beholding Christ in his grace and in his mercy and his reality will do much to lessen our anxiety. Just a pure 
sight of Christ in his glory will do much to lessen our glory or uh, lessen our anxiety. And that's why Paul's saying, make it a practical discipline in your life to rejoice in the Lord always. We are always bringing to mind Christ and his beauty and his righteousness and his gift of grace, and we are rejoicing in him. And that will cut the, our anxiety at its root. So that is our first discipline, you might say, the first practice we must implement into our life. So grab Spotify, throw on some, some worship as you're driving, and rejoice in the Lord. You don't need Spotify, but worship the Lord. I mean, Paul, Paul tells, that, uh, tells us that elsewhere, right? When we're filled with the Spirit, we're going to be singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in our heart to the Lord. You can just be making melody in your heart, uh, in your heart to the Lord anytime, any day. And that's what Paul's calling to us here. And this is going to have a a profound effect on our anxiety. Next thing that we need to build into our life is practicing public gentleness. Practicing public gentleness. This is verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. This is quite the command, I think. This word reasonableness can just as well be translated gentleness. The New American Standard translates it gentle spirit. Maybe some of you are using the New American Standard. The NIV translates it as gentleness. And gentleness is the way that this word is translated all throughout the New Testament. So you can easily say, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Paul is instructing us to consistently conduct ourselves with others in a way that is not angry or aggressive or pushy or constantly aiming to get one's way. That's what it means to be gentle. You're not angry or aggressive or pushy or constantly aiming to get your way. To let our gentleness be known to all, not just a few people, not just people in your family, but all people. To let it be known to all is to not allow bitterness or a vengeful attitude to flavor our interactions with others. That's what it means to be gentle and to let that gentleness be known to all people. We should be known as gentle people, not weak people that don't have conviction. That's not at all what Paul's talking about. Paul was a man of conviction. He was an example of what it means to have conviction about what is true and to die for it even, right? So Paul's not talking about a lack of conviction here, but having that conviction of what the truth is, we are gentle with people. We're not angry. We're not pushy. We're not bitter, and we're letting it be known to all. Gentleness is characterized by patience, compassion, and an unwillingness to return evil for evil. We are gentle in the way we deal with people, but we don't compromise the truth. We speak the truth in love. There it is. Now, let me ask, how does this practice, may not be immediately obvious, how does this practice relate to enjoying the peace of God? Let me explain. Because Our hearts and minds will not be resting in God when it is full of aggression and anger towards others. It's just, it can't happen. It it just, I, I think you can prove that out in your experience. Your heart will not be resting in the Lord if it is full of anger and bitterness towards other people. Just can't happen. And I think that might be something that some of us are missing, that we have detached our relationship with God from our relationship with people. We think that we can have a vibrant, holy, happy relationship with God while we are at odds with lots of other people. 
And if that's how you conceive of the Christian life, let me just say this. You're probably deceived about your relationship with God. It's not as happy and as holy as you think it is. Because God even tells us in 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. How can you love God whom you haven't seen when you don't love the brother who you do see? You cannot be someone who is constantly angry at others or stores up bitterness towards friends and family or colleagues and think you can also enjoy the supernatural peace of God. Those things don't work together. They were never meant to. They can't function in the same soul. God does not allow that. He, he never intended for that to be the case. Your conscience will be constantly defiled and burdened by your sinful anger and your bitterness in your heart won't be, in you, in, because of that bitterness, your heart won't be rightly prepared to enjoy the peace of God. Only a gentle spirit is a peaceful spirit. There's no way around it. And man, it took me some time to get this, but this is crucial. And what is the grounds for this? Look at what he says. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, what's the connection there? I find that interesting. For a while, it took me, it took me a while to figure this out. Why, what's the connection there? Why would the Lord being at hand provoke and create in us gentleness? Well, if you anticipate the, the Lord Jesus returning at any moment, and that is the, in the forefront of your mind, then you are more likely to be practicing gentleness with others. You are less, you're going to be less likely to be storing up bitterness and, and anger. And so the knowledge that the Lord is at hand, he is, he is here, he could be returning at any moment, knowing that, recognizing that, that will provoke in us gentleness and reasonableness towards others. So we're called to rejoice in the Lord, we're called to let our gentleness be known to everyone, but we're also called now here in the text that is so familiar with this to resist anxiety through thankful prayer. This is discipline number three. We need to resist anxiety through thankful prayer. He says, do not be anxious about anything but everything by prayer and supplication. Let your requests be made known to God. Well, we need to first, I think, define anxiety. We haven't defined it yet, and I think that would be helpful. And it's interesting, as I was preparing for this message, I found it interesting that you just, it's, it's hard to find a very clear and concise definition of anxiety. So I got online and started to look around, and I got several definitions that only talked about what anxiety causes, not what anxiety is. Isn't that interesting? I found it interesting. The American Psychological Association says, quote, anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. People with anxiety disorders usually have reoccurring intrusive thoughts or concerns. And I read that and thought, well, yeah, right? I mean, I'm not, I know what it's doing to me. I want to know what it is, right? Uh, another uh, one said, um, the American Psychiatric Association said, this, this actually gets closer to, there's a few more. I, I, won't, I won't belabor the point. There's a few more from the Mayo Clinic and the National Institute of Mental Health. They offer similar descriptions of the one that I just read from the American Psycholo uh, Psychological Association. The American Psychiatric Association gets a little closer to actually giving a, giving a definition when it says, anxiety refers to anticipation of a future concern and is more associated with mus muscle tension and avoidance behavior. Okay, so that's about as good as it got when I was scouring the internet to see how the world defines anxiety. And I think that 
most recent definition gets close to defining it by saying anxiety refers to an anticipation of a future concern. There it is. Anxiety is a concern over the future, if you just want to boil it down to a, a simple statement. Anxiety is concern over the future. Okay, so let that hang with you for a moment. Let's define it now biblically. What is anxiety? Now, in defining this biblically, one thing that's important to do is to recognize there is such a thing, believe it or not, this might blow you away. It blew me away. There's actually such a thing as godly anxiety. There is such a thing as godly anxiety. Now, what's, that may not, maybe all of you knew that. Maybe you knew that. That's cool. You guys are good biblical scholars and theologians. I didn't realize that early in my Christian life. And so I would tell people that any kind of anxiety was sinful. And I just regret how many times I probably told somebody that. It wasn't helpful. And we need to recognize this because we want to be effective, skillful counselors, don't we, with our brothers and sisters? And we need to recognize there is such a thing as godly anxiety. Good anxiety, you might say. Let me give you an example, biblically speaking. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-34, Paul anticipates that when you have a wife or a husband, you're going to have anxieties over their welfare. And, and, and Paul is actually assuming that these things are good and necessary. But in 1 Corinthians 12, 25, he says this. This is interesting. Talking about the body and how we're all knit together. He says, God has so composed the body, the body of Christ, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care. That's the word translated anxiety. That's the same word that we're looking at here. That's the word anxiety here in Philippians. Care. God knitted the body together so that all the members would have the same care for one another, the same anxiety, you could say, for one another. What does that look like? If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. There is a kind of anxiety that grows out of a genuine godly love that we have for one another. To have concern over the welfare of other members in the body, even a concern that keeps you up at night praying for them, thinking about them, that's a good and godly kind of anxiety. Is that amazing? I wish I would have known that 20 years ago when I'm giving people wrong counsel. There's also a legitimate kind of anxiety that God has built into us so that we'll avoid unnecessary harm and danger. Proverbs 22.3, quote, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. There's a certain amount of anxiety, we might say, that is appropriate and helps us make wise decisions about possible future situations and circumstances. But there is also a sinful kind of anxiety, and now we do need to reckon with what Scripture says about this topic. There is a kind of sinful anxiety that the Bible warns us against. You might remember the story of Mary and Martha in Luke chapter 10. And Mary's there sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is teaching, and Martha is running around serving and what began as a good intention, she's serving, there's nothing wrong with serving, but it, it, it's so spun out of control that now she's actually sinfully anxious about what was going on to the point where she actually told Jesus to rebuke Mary for sitting around. Why? Because she'd become, she'd become overwhelmed with a, a kind of anxiety that was causing her to sin in other areas. So that's, that happens in Luke chapter 10 with Martha and 
And, and Jesus said, why are you anxious about all these? You, have, you don't realize what's truly important in this particular situation. He doesn't rebuke her for serving, but for not recognizing what should have taken priority and that had caused her some sinful anxiety. There's a kind of anxiety over daily needs that can lead us to neglect the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 6, right? And then helps us to counter that anxiety by reminding us that God will provide you everything that you need. Seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. Look at the, the, the birds of the sky. They're completely provided for, and you are worth far more than those birds. And so Jesus helps us to combat that sinful anxiety that can creep in. So I would define sinful anxiety this way. Sinful anxiety is an inner fear that something in the immediate or distant future will not go well for you or someone you care about. That, okay, that's not the end of the definition, that causes you to sin in other areas of your life, neglect your responsibilities, and become careless in your obedience to God. So anxiety is the inner fear that something in the immediate or distant future will not go well with you or someone you care about, okay? That's anxiety, and that can be a good anxiety, actually, as we just discovered. But sinful anxiety, you add this latter part. It causes, you know it's becoming sinful when it causes you to sin in other areas of your life. Neglect your responsibilities and become careless in your obedience to God. When I was asked this question, Derek, how do you know if my anxiety is sinful? The answer is, you'll know when it's causing you to sin in other areas of your life. That's how you'll know. That's how you know you've been overcome by anxiety. Sinful anxiety is characterized by excessive fear that it disables you from worship, keeps you from obedience, robs your joy, and increases your temptation to sin in other areas of your life. It may cause you and typically causes us to get more easily angered and annoyed and frustrated and depressed. The depression often comes because the anxiety has disabled the person from fulfilling their responsibilities So they feel guilty about neglecting their responsibilities, so they keep neglecting them, which deepens their depression because God has made us to work and exercise dominion, and to remain in that cycle is not helpful. So Paul gives us very practical and gracious counsel here, doesn't he? He doesn't want us to have sinful anxiety. He doesn't want us to be overcome with anxiety, hence the command. But he tells us how to combat it. He doesn't just say, be anxious for nothing, I'll see you tomorrow, right? That would that wouldn't be, that'd almost be kind of frustrating, wouldn't it? Be anxious for nothing. Do, do you see all the stuff I have to be anxious about, Paul? Have you, do, do you know what's going on, right? He doesn't just leave us there. Be anxious for nothing. How do, we, how do we combat it? Well, what we have to point out is that he's not calling us to be indifferent. He's not calling us to be indifferent to those who are suffering or the potential harm that could come our way. That's why I mentioned earlier that there's a godly kind of anxiety. To be anxious for nothing is not a call to be indifferent. It's not a call to just ignore people's trials or to ignore the hard situations in your life that are coming upon you. We're not called to indifference. Rather, he's exhorting us to take deliberate action to fend off the encroachment of sinful anxiety, the kind of anxiety that overwhelms us. And how do we do that? Well, we've already said we have to start by rejoicing in the Lord always, practicing public gentleness, but now battling anxiety through thankful prayer. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but, which tells us that this needs to be the immediate impulse of our soul. When we start to see an anxiety encroach, boom, we we combat it with 
Thanks, uh, prayer and supplication. Now, those two words are used, they're, they're uh, pretty synonymous words. It's hard to tell if there's a strict difference between them. But Paul's point is simply to say that this prayer needs to be earnest prayer. With prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. His main point is that this is earnest prayer, but this prayer needs to be characterized by thankfulness. Why thankfulness? This is so crucial. This is so crucial. You could experience this even today before you leave as you're praying to God. Thankfulness is key here because anxiety grows where God's providential kindness is not clearly seen. Anxiety grows where God's providential kindness is not clearly seen. When your eyes are only fixed on what is hard and what is difficult and what is, uh, has caused you suffering, when your eyes are only fixed on that, you will be full of anxiety because you haven't stepped back and looked at all the various ways that God has provided for you, blessed you, encouraged you, helped you, all the ways he's shown you his grace. But just think of it for a moment. You could even do this today. Just start, you've got some potential for anxiety in your life, a hard situation coming up, a hard situation you're dealing with right now. And to back out a little bit and to just start listing all the ways that God has been good to you. And to just start thanking him for all those ways he's been good for you. And you will be amazed at how powerful that is against your anxiety. God, thank you for how you've provided me for me. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for what you just did for me last week. Thank you for the fact that I could get up this morning and have a meal and put on clothes and come to church. Thank you for my brothers and sisters at the church. Thank you for how you just recently provided for me uh, last week. Whatever it might be, you just start listing the prayers. You know, we, we, we call it counting our blessings, and that's kind of become cliche, but it's, it's entirely right. That's what Paul's talking about here. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So thanksgiving is key here. But then there's another piece. Paul instructs us to plainly let our requests be made known to God. Why? Because, again, anxiety also grows when we lose sight of God's care for us. Peter describes the Lord as one who cares for us. He cares for you. He has a heart of compassion for you. He cares for your temporal and eternal welfare. He cares for you. He loves you. He has set his uh, eye of affection upon you. He has put you in Christ because he loves you, and he's loved you from the foundation of the, the earth. And he cares for, us, cares for us holistically. Ultimately, he's the one who can help us in any given situation. Ultimately, he's the only one. Now, often he'll use means, but in terms of the ultimate source of our help, he's the only one. The immediate turn of the heart when confronted with problems and troubles that tempt us to fall into overwhelming anxiety is thankful prayer. But notice what he says. I love this. Let your requests be made known to God. You know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, let your anxiety be made known to God. Lord, I'm so anxious about this. That's not what he tells us. He tells you to make the request, doesn't he? You have something that's causing anxiety in your life. And it's, and it's due to something that could be helped if the Lord would, would hear you and answer. So what should you do? Paul says, make the request. 
Paul says, make the request, and what's your request? Here's an example. Father, my request is that my test results will be good. Maybe you had some blood work this week. Maybe you had some tests. God, here's my request. I'm making my request. You told me to make the request. I'm anxious about what these test results could mean. I'm making the request. You told me to. And if they are not, my request is that my disease will be treatable and that you will help me glorify you through the whole process. Make the request. I mean, I, I just, it's just amazing to me in my own life how I just, I forget this. I forget to make the request. I'll just kind of go through life and, and I'm getting wrapped up with anxiety and fearful and what's going to happen and what's going to happen. I'm, and then I'll, I snap to and I'm like, well, I haven't made the request, right? That's what Paul's telling us to do. Or here's another example. You're anxious about your son driving himself to college. That won't happen for us for the, and for another five years. But say your child is 18 and you're uh, anxious about him driving himself to college for the first time the, uh, next fall. You've made all the necessary provisions. You've checked the engine and the tires. You've laid out the roadmap. You've provided him with a cell phone. But you are anxious with the actual drive because you don't want something to happen to him. So what should you do? Make the request, right? That's what Paul says, make the request. These spirit-enabled practices of rejoicing in the Lord, letting your gentleness be known to everyone, and going to God in thankful prayer and making the request, these are God's means of providing you with a supernatural peace that is deeper and more powerful and more enduring than what the world could ever manufacture. And the world is working with all of its might to end anxiety in countless ways. But Paul is, is giving you these practices to build into your life that will lead to enjoying a peace of God like the, the likes of the world will never experience outside of Christ. Even in the midst of great trial, this is what's amazing, even in the midst of great trial, you can experience the supernatural peace of God. It's not irrational. It's more than rational, but it's not irrational. It's a supernatural. This is what the peace of God is. It's a supernatural sense that your heavenly Father is in full control of all things. He is good. He is kind, and he will do all that is necessary for your good. That's what that supernatural peace is. It is a supernatural sense that your Father is in control of all things, and he is good and kind, and he will do all things necessary for your good. It's a supernatural clarity of mind and trust in the heart that your Heavenly Father has everything under control. No matter what it looks like in your life or in the world right now. And if, if we back out for a second and if we forget who we are in Christ and we forget who the Lord is and fail to rejoice in Him and, and these kinds of things, it is very easy to quickly become overwhelmed with anxiety just by reading the news. I know people who have stopped reading the news because it causes anxiety. They just, they just don't read it anymore. I'm not suggesting that you must do that. I'm just saying people recognize that just the news itself is a, is a source of anxiety because it looks like if you just step back, if you just, and you forget what you've seen here, it looks like things are out of control. Like, Lord, are you really in control? Well, yes, he is, and we have to remind ourselves of that. So the peace of God is not indifference to those who are suffering. 
It's not indifference to potential harm that could come our way, but it is an inner sense that our Heavenly Father is trustworthy to do only good to us. Did you know He only does good to His children? Only good? He only does good to His children. He only acts in love towards His children. Isn't that amazing? The Lord Jesus has never done you wrong. (laughs) Meditate on that for the rest of the day. He's never done you wrong. Even when there is something that's brought into your life that's hard and you would say even evil, your Heavenly Father is working all of that together specifically out of love for your good. That's incredible. Every moment we experience is under the sovereign hand of a loving Father. And this is a piece that surpasses all understanding. It's not, like I said, irrational. It's rooted in biblical truth. And this peace guards our hearts, as Paul says. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. He says it will guard our hearts, our emotions. It will guard our minds, our thoughts. And it will do all of this in Christ Jesus, the one we are united to, the one whose righteousness, the one whose righteousness we have. My heart is settled. My mind is calm. My final destiny, destiny is a place where there will be no more anxiety. There's coming a day where there will be no more anxiety for us. And then finally... I shouldn't say finally, actually, there's one more after this, but this is, this is coming towards the uh, end here. Uh, Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and he's going to now explain to us how we are to dwell on certain things in order to experience the peace of God. So I want you to connect two things here. I want you to look up at verse 7. He says, and he, he just, in verse 4, he started explaining to us these disciplines that we have to implement, and he says, in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, it will be ours, okay? But then if you look at verse 9, he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So this whole section is about enjoying the peace of God. So you can't stop at verse 7. You actually have to implement verse 8. Now I'm going to show you why verse 8 is so vital. The next thing we must do, the next practice we must build in our life in order to truly enjoy the peace of God is we must dwell on good things. Dwell on good things. Why is this so essential? Listen to this. this is, we can forget this very easily, I think, and overlook it. This is why it's essential to us enjoying the peace of God, because our consciences will be defiled and when our hearts and minds dabble in unwholesome things. And when our consciences are defiled, we can experience the peace of God. A defiled conscience is a troubled conscience. Actually, I would say that most mental, so-called mental health issues are the result of a defiled conscience, a troubled conscience. A troubled conscience is a conscience that cannot enjoy the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. That's why Paul's telling us that we have to dwell on what is good. If we dwell on falsehood or if our minds are constantly speculating about the future based on spotty or otherwise unreliable evidence, we're not going to enjoy the peace of God. Again, that's why some people just are shutting off the news. So let us take these uh, phrase by phrase. Whatever is true. So we must dwell on whatever is true. This refers to the truth of God's word, obviously. That's the root and the foundation. But it's also a statement that refers to whatever is true in this world. The word for true here literally means what's in accordance with the facts. We have to dwell on what's in accordance with the facts. You and I will not enjoy the peace of God if we speculate about a particular problem or what someone might say or what someone might do. 
Did you know that's not dwelling on what is true? And let me ask you, how often have you had anxiety because you are speculating about what someone might say or do? Paul is saying, I know, I know you do that. So you need to think on what is true. Don't dwell on speculation or conjecture. Dwell on what is true. We can, we can get swept up in news reports that we haven't even confirmed whether or not they're true, and they cause anxiety. This robs us of peace, obviously. We can even get swept up in social media where people are just portraying really all that's good in their life, and we, we, it's kind of lopsided, and we get swept up in that and realize, wait, I'm not dwelling on what is true. They're only giving me half of their life. Paul tells us we can't dwell on what is speculative or conjectural or unfounded or even theoretical. That was an important thing that we needed to hear a few years ago. This is a hard but very important discipline, and it's essential for us enjoying the peace of God. So we have to dwell on whatever is true, but we also have to dwell on whatever is honorable because there are true things that are not honorable, correct? We could dwell on true things that are evil, gross, defiling, or inappropriate, so we have to dwell on not only what is true, but on the things that are honorable. This word means, that's translated honorable, it means that which provokes awe or reverence. That which provokes awe or reverence. Now, reverence. now obviously, the first thing you go to in terms of dwelling on what is honorable is the Scripture, and on God Himself, and on Christ. That's the most honorable thing that we could dwell on. In fact, we're to meditate on the Word of God day and night, as the psalmist says. But there will be things that coincide with biblical truth and biblical principles in this life. There are believers and unbelievers who create stories and songs and movies that are both Christian and not explicitly Christian. There are experiences and conversations, even news events that are honorable, dignified, and ennobling that are outside the Bible. And actually having our minds transformed by Scripture enables us to see that which is truly honorable out in the world, even if it's in a faint kind of way, because our mind is transformed by Scripture. So that, that as, we, as we, our, our minds are renewed and sanctified by the Word of God, we're actually able to look out into the world and recognize what is honorable and what is pure. We need to dwell on what is pure. This has a reference to ethical or moral purity. We want to maintain a good conscience, right, if we're going to enjoy the peace of God. We can't dwell on things that are morally or ethically impure. We have to shun thoughts that are impure or immoral or unclean. Dwelling on things which are immoral and are unclean will only to defile the conscience. But we also can't dwell on things that provoke feelings of revenge or anger or bitterness. That will also rob us of God's peace as we've seen. We need to dwell on whatever is lovely. I love this word here. This refers to whatever is pleasing or agreeable or amiable. And I think for the regenerate Christian, there are a thousand things in this world that God has created. Remember, we do live in a fallen world, but it's a world that God created that Paul himself said that is still good. Did you know that? First Timothy 4, the sign of a false teacher is someone who says that this world is, is no longer good, that you can't eat food and enjoy marriage, that you need to shun those things, and that's more spiritual. No, that's actually the doctrine of demons, because this world, though fallen, is still good. God created it, and God created it good. And so there are a thousand in, innocent enjoyments for the Christian who's been born again, who has, who's, to whom all things are pure, that you can enjoy. A good old baseball game, some sunflower seeds, a beautiful sunset, 
I think for those who have eyes to see, children are a wonderful delight. Their innocence, their purity, they're a picture of humility. I love it when the hills are green in the East, East Bay. That's, I love driving up 680 and seeing those green hills in the uh, rainy season. I love a nice fresh bag of coffee beans, amen? These are things that are lovely. These are just simple, innocent pleasures that God has laid out before us. Things that, can, that are amiable, that are lovely, and things that, are, that can be dwelt upon. And it, they can be enjoyed when a, when a mind is undefiled by the things of the world. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Our mind is rooted and saturated in Scripture, and therefore we can look out and we can do what Paul says. We can discern what is, we can discern what is good and evil, and we can leave the evil, and we can embrace the good. And then he says here, whatever is commendable, whatever, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And again, plenty in the Scripture that we can dwell on that are worthy of praise and excellent and commendable. But there are other uh, things outside of Scripture that we can dwell on. I just wanted to give you an example of this uh, from a little story that I read a few years ago. One of the things I think that we can uh, dwell on that are commendable are stories of courage. And I think courage is a needed thing in our day. But in 1939, in May of 1939, there was a, a, a submarine over on the East Coast, right off the, the um, New England coast, that had developed some serious problems and started to sink. And this is, this is really serious for submarines at that time because once you started to sink, I mean, it's basically over for you. And uh, the uh, battery rooms were starting to flood. And that is highly dangerous because these submarines are powered by high-powered uh, batteries. And uh, once they started to flood, they would uh, cause the, a serious situation to where you could be electrocuted and anybody going in to repair them would be electrocuted. Well, that didn't stop Chief Electrician's mate Lawrence Gaynor from going in and taking care of business in order to help out in this situation. So here it is, this, this battery room has these massive batteries in them, and he walks in and he sees that they are giving this huge electrical arc, one, one to the other. And it's almost like lightning, it's so powerful. And they're flashing, and it's in, in any moment if he touches the wrong thing, he's dead. And so what is he going to do? Well, there's, there's water f- flooding in, and, and, but he's got to shut this thing down so that the whole, uh, the whole thing doesn't go up and smoke. And he's got to go in and shut these batteries down. And so it says this, the story about this, uh, Lawrence Gaynor says, Without hesitation, Gaynor lowered himself down there. The big batteries, six feet high, completely filled the space beneath the deck except for a narrow center walk. Alone, squinting against the fiery bands dancing around him, he crouched on the walk and groped for the master disconnect switches. Finally, he located the starboard switch and yanked it clear. Next, he bent to his left and for the port switch. A terrifying arc over it sputtered and flashed in his face. One brush against it would send him to a horrible death. Gaynor was sure that he would be electrocuted before he would reach the switch. He tried anyway. In the last desperate effort, he jerked it free. The fierce arcs vanished. He had shut it down. Gaynor stayed for a minute, gathering himself. Then he quietly made his way up the ladder. And I just give you that as an example of courage. That gentleman was not a Christian. That wasn't a Christian book. But there is a wonderful example of courage that we can recognize and enjoy and recognize as commendable because our minds have been saturated by Scripture and we've been taught what true courage does. It lays itself down for your friends. 
The ultimate example is in Jesus Christ. And when you see Jesus Christ, then you can look out into the world and you can recognize these things. And Paul is telling us to let our minds be filled with that which is commendable and excellent. And those things are in Scripture and they may be found outside of Scripture. So let me just make this real practical so we don't keep it in the abstract. If we're going to fill our minds with what is true and honorable, then this has everything to do with what we listen to on our way to work. It has everything to do with what we listen to during our workouts while at home. It has everything to do with what you read. A heart stuff with the latest celebrity gossip or scintillating romance novel will have a difficult dwelling on what time dwelling on what is good. It has everything to do with what we fill our eyes and ears with on Netflix, Hulu, Peacock, and YouTube. How can we expect to maintain a good conscience when we dwell on things or place ourselves in the midst of things that flaunt immorality, filthy language, and so on? And I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't watch movies. Our family does. But what I'm saying is, is that Paul is clearly connecting the peace of God to our consciences and what we are filling our minds with. So don't think that you can enjoy the peace of God if you are not filling your mind with what is good. All right, let's wrap this up in verse 9. Finally, we need to follow the apostolic word and example. If we want to enjoy the peace of God, we need to follow the apostolic word and example. He says this, Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I say this is following the apostolic word and example because Paul is, is saying, listen, you've seen how we have lived and now you need to follow that. And you've, you've received certain teaching and you need to practice that. And of course, this first and foremost has to do with receiving and believing the gospel as we pointed out at the beginning of this message. Enjoying the supernatural peace of God and effectively overcoming anxiety cannot happen in the life of someone who is not immersing himself with the apostolic gospel that, he is, that Paul has given and the other apostles have given. But he has also laid out for us an example. And Paul recognizes that examples are essential for us in our Christian life to help us overcome anxiety. So the question is, is, is who do you have as an example in your life? Who do you have in your life who will rebuke you when you are in sin? Who are, you, are you surrounding yourself with faithful brothers and sisters who are pursuing Christian maturity who will encourage you with the gospel and correct you when you go astray? So what needs to be pointed out and what Paul's pointing out here, and I, I hope what we're already getting, is that we can enjoy the peace of God apart from the local church. You can't isolate yourself and separate yourself from the body and think that you are going to enjoy God's supernatural peace. God is designed for this peace to flourish as you are in rubbing shoulders and receiving encouragement and exhortation and accountability with other believers and from other believers. We need that example. You know, one of the most powerful things in my life is beholding godly example in the lives of other people. The Word of God is powerful, and when I see it lived out concretely, that's powerful. And in my life, that is that God, the Lord has used godly example time and again to help me to walk more obediently. And Paul's point is that as we have received that apostolic word and example and, and seen those things in him, we need to practice them. And by extension, as we see them carried out in the lives of others, and by their example, we'll be encouraged and thereby enjoy and experience the peace of God. So 
what we need to understand is all of these things are necessary. These five practices are necessary. They're essential. They're not burdensome. They're just things that we need to build into and weave into our lives. When we, by God's grace, rejoice in the Lord, practice gentleness, make thankful requests to God, dwell on good things, and walk in accordance with the gospel and godly example, God will bless us with supernatural peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that only comes from knowing that our Father is in full control of all things, that He loves us, He hears us, and He's working everything out for His glory and our good. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you just immense amount of praise. Just We are moved by this text. And I pray move to implement in these disciplines and to weave them into our life by your grace and your help that we might truly experience the, the supernatural peace of God. You intend for us to. We won't experience it perfectly in this life. It will ebb and flow because we live in a fallen world and life is hard and and we're sinners, but you do intend for us to experience it because you love us and you want us to enjoy that peace and because you get great glory from it as a, as a good and gracious father who loves his children. So I pray that you'd help each one here today, including myself, to walk in these important practices so that we might enjoy the peace of God. In Jesus' name, amen.